Welcome, everyone, to It Simply Isn't Done, the Sermon Recap Podcast. I'm Reverend Jess Davenport. And I am Reverend Barry Petrucci. We are the pastors at Chapel Hill Church. And together we are the, the Irreverent Reverends. And uh, like the name would suggest, this podcast is the message from Sunday, where we share the scripture and then the sermon, and uh, we meet you back for some reflection on that message. There will be an opportunity to, if you look down in the notes, you will see a place where you can go directly to the reflection. If you already listened to the scripture uh, on the sermon, or if you just want to skip them all together and uh, just hear what we have to think about it, um, you can go there. We're happy you're here. We are indeed. Welcome to Advent Week 3. I believe even when. I believe even when. This week was Ode to Joy. That was the name of the message. Um, no. <laughs> That's canon in D. Uh, and I don't think it was in D. <laughs> it was not in D. It was not a wedding. Um, I'll edit that out. Sure. So, so, hum a few bars. Do, 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 do. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not canon indie. Both bangers. Both bangers. not interchangeable. No, no. Pachelbel, yeah? Canon indie? Pachelbel's canon. Well, we were talking about joy. It is, it is the week that we light the pink candle, the joy candle. In some congregations, like Chapel Hill, we emphasize that it is Gaudete Sunday. And we often say it like that, <laughs> with a little zest behind it. Um, if you weren't there, Barry, tell us a little, a little bit about Gaudete Sunday. Well, as I understand it, it's uh, really tied back to... Uh, the Latin for being joyful and um, Mary, um, you know, as this kid who finds that she is going to be expecting God to be birthed out of her own womb, um, is able to is able to sing joy, and um, it's the church surrounding that anticipation during Advent, and we have attributed the color pink to it for I don't know how long, but it's been one of the liturgical colors. Mm-hmm. And I like it because I get to rock my pink stole. Yes, you do. You do. Which is actually a breast cancer awareness well, thing, so get, I get to do two. Yes, it's good to have multi, multi-use. multi <laughs> Well, the scripture we went with um, was selections from Luke 1, particularly around when the angel Gabriel came to Mary, and then Mary went to visit her cousin, Elizabeth. If you um, have already had a chance to listen to the scripture and the message, you can check the show notes for the time mark for where you can join us for reflection. I invite you to hear these words from the Gospel of Luke. Many people have already applied themselves to the task of compiling an account of the events that have been fulfilled among us. 
they used what the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed down to us. Now, after having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, I have also decided to write a carefully ordered account for you, most honorable Theophilus. I want you to have confidence in the soundness of the instruction you have received. When Elizabeth was six months pregnant, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a city in Galilee, to a virgin who was engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. When the angel came to her, he said, Rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was confused by these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said, don't be afraid, Mary. God is honoring you. Look, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father. He will rule over Jacob's house forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Then Mary said to the angel, How did this happen, since I haven't had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one who is to be born will be holy. He will be called God's Son. Look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman, who was labeled unable to conceive, is now six months pregnant. Nothing is impossible for God. Then Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. Then the angel left her. Mary got up and hurried to a city in the Judean highlands. She entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. With a loud voice, she blurted out, God has blessed you above all women, and he has blessed the child you carry. Why do I have this honor that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Happy is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill the promises he made to her. Mary said, with all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone. From one generation to the next, who honors him as God. He has shown strength with his arm he has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. 
He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her home. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Amen. All right. Wow. Friends, you are aware by now it is Advent week three. We are in the week of joy. You saw us light the pink candle. Ooh. The origin of the pink candle is disputed, um, but most claim that pink is the liturgical color for joy, and I love that. Barry mentioned it's Gaudete Sunday, joy Sunday. Gaudete means rejoice in Latin. Most years this Sunday, the third Sunday of Advent, we are halfway through. Most years, right? The calendar falls a little goofy this year. But halfway through Advent, we take time and space to consider and ponder joy. We tell a little bit about Mary's story on this week, too. I've thought a lot about joy throughout my life. My name for most of my life included joy in it. My main name was Joyce. So most of my nicknames had some Joycey joy something to do with it, so I've thought a lot about it. And I think that name, that identity, shaped a bit of who I am. I highly value joy and fun and frivolity, but I think among that list, joy is a bit different. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a gift from God, but it is not one that we passively receive like hope, like love, like peace we'll hear about next week. Joy is something we are called to cultivate in our lives. Sometimes I think folks act like joy is just something that happens to them. You're just like, oh, that was great. Like it just occurs around you and how lucky you are to be in its presence. You're in the right place at the right time. Or the circumstances in your life are such that joy can be there, right? They allow for joy. I don't think that's the extent of it. It might be part of it. But friends, I'm here to tell you that I think joy is a practice, a practice that we cultivate. I think another common misconception is that joy must be the only predominant visible emotion, that joy looks a certain way. It is a feeling that you can describe on someone's face. And I think that's true. But I think that implies we can only have one feeling or experience at a time. I know having feelings and experiences in discrete boxes helps us talk about them or categorize them as if in one moment you can only be happy or joyful or sad or angry. But in reality, they co-occur. Many of us have those feelings and experiences all at once. And I think true joy often rises up out of circumstances folks would consider less than joyful. If I were to name 
Ode to Joy, how many of you could hum the tune? Let's hear it. Let's do it. Yes, I can't distinguish any discernible tune, but I trust that it's there. <laughs> we know it. We know it. Do, 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 do. Yeah, we're there. It's an incredibly well-known tune throughout the entire world, such that we could come together and without any practice, hum it on a Sunday morning. Beethoven wrote the fourth and final movement of his ninth symphony based on the poem, Ode to Joy by Friedrich Schiller, a German poet contemporary. Many scholars think Schiller's poem was originally titled Ode to Freedom. I want you to think about that for a minute. What are the connections between joy and freedom? I want to read a stanza of his poem translated into English for you. Rescue from the chains of tyrants, magnanimity to the villain too, hope on the deathbed, mercy in the high court of law, even the dead shall live. Brothers, drink and agree with me that all sinners shall be forgiven and hell shall be no more. Schiller was writing about joy and freedom and jubilee and the end of oppression. This was an interesting poem for Beethoven to choose to base the last movement of his Ninth Symphony on. Beethoven's entire life was plagued with chronic illness. Um, we think now he had lead poisoning. He had migraines that lasted for weeks where he was entirely debilitated. Um, he had colitis. And in his early 20s, this prodigy, hailed as the next Mozart, started to lose his hearing. He was a musician. He lived for his art. He performed music for his living, lost and was losing his hearing, slowly fading away from him. This made, obviously, his professional life, but also his social life, almost impossible. He fell into a deep depression, and he contemplated taking his own life. And he actually wrote a note saying, I would take my own life. I thought about it. Instead, I will live miserably. But because I love my art, there's something worth going on for. Because of music, I have more to give. By the time he premiered his Ninth Symphony, he was entirely deaf. Many thought he was washed up and mad. Um, he showed up, and, and scholars, in retrospect, think his conducting and his writing were so fluid and free because he could not actually hear what was happening in front of him. He was imagining the music in his head. Current-day conductor Marin Alsip said, I think because he didn't actually hear the pieces played, he didn't censor them in the same way. He kept moving forward in terms of experimentation, in terms of taking risks. And the last part of his final major work, Ode to Joy, in defiance of every circumstance telling him he should not be joyful at all. 
His life was crumbling around him. He could not perform anymore. This man wrote Moonlight Sonata for a woman he loved, and she was like, that's great. No thanks. Right? Like, he had a lot of personal troubles in addition to his professional troubles. He was this passionate man, but there's not a lot in society telling him he should experience joy. And yet, and yet, Ode to Joy was one of his greatest gifts to us, based on another's poem. Ode to Joy has, for centuries, been an anthem of defiant freedom. In the 1970s in Chile, during Pinochet's dictatorship, he detained thousands of young men and and gathered them up in a football stadium and uh, tortured them. And women, their wives, their sisters, their mothers, their daughters, would gather outside this makeshift prison, outside the soccer stadium, and they would sing and hum Ode to Joy so the prisoners could hear, could hear and remember freedom. Protesters blasted Ode to Joy in Tiananmen Square. It was played the day after the Berlin Wall came down in a concert celebrating peace. In 2011, after the tsunami in Japan, Ode to Joy was played nightly for concerts, helping folks remember there could be joy. This song and these folks were claiming that all kinds of oppression cannot take joy. Joy is the real freedom. To practice joy is to resist what would take away all of us, our identities, our freedom. It's telling any oppressive force they cannot win. There's a really beautiful documentary that's maybe about 10 years old called Following the Ninth, and it traces all the use of Beethoven's Ode to Joy, particularly in spaces of oppression, seeking liberation. It's on YouTube if you want to watch it, if you're interested in more detail. But I include all of that, any of that, to help us understand and draw the connection that joy is not shallow. Joy is not vapid. Joy stems from an acknowledgement that the world is not as it should be, and human suffering at the hands of other humans was not part of God's plan, and joy claims there will be human thriving as a part of God's plan. Joy is not to spite anyone. We practice joy in spite of circumstances that might not seem joy-filled to others. Today, we have the Magnificat. We saw a video of it. We heard Pat read it. Magnificat is Latin for my soul magnifies the Lord. It's one of four hymns found in our Gospels, written in the style of Jewish Psalter. In it, Mary who was given a pretty rough set of circumstances that we'll get into, makes a choice. And she sings a song, my soul magnifies the Lord. I will give my life to glorify God. And what's interesting about this, her song, she doesn't really talk about her pregnancy. She doesn't really talk about birthing Jesus. She says that folks will consider her highly favored because of the great things God has done for her, but that's, that's really as much as she goes into her personal life. Instead, the rest of the song, she steps fully into the role as God-bearer 
requesting justice, naming justice, praising God's justice. It's a triumphant song stating that that God turns the ways of the world on their head and raises up the lowly and casts down the mighty off their thrones. Hungry bellies will be filled. This joy-filled song is not individualistic. It's not about her personal happiness. It's from this deep well within saying joy is found in human thriving, which is God's desire for us. I want us to think about Mary for a minute, right? So she's probably 14. Why is she at Elizabeth's? She fled. She fled. Right? We have in this story, Gabriel, this angel, shows up and says, hey, guess what? God's with you. And we see she's puzzled. She's puzzled by that. It's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. And then God says, you know what? Through, through Gabriel, you're going to have this baby. <sighs> she ends up kind of resigning herself to it. But then, without talking to anyone in the scripture, certainly without talking to Joseph, she runs away. She runs away to her cousins. Think about how scary this would have been. This would have been, ooh. She knew. She knew that this could ruin her. She knew that having a baby before being married was not acceptable. And it was the expectation for Joseph to loudly let everyone know that he didn't ruin the contract. It was her. Shame on her. She should be outcast, her and her baby, not connected to any family any longer because these marriages, they were not just love marriages between two people. They were familial contracts that she broke. He has every right to ensure she has nothing. She has gone away. To the best of our knowledge, again, she gets this message from Gabriel and she doesn't talk to Joseph. She hightails it out of there. She goes up to see her cousin Elizabeth. I think about how scared she must have been. And I love Elizabeth's response. She gets there and Elizabeth also has this God moment. It's like, you know what, Mary, it's going to be, we're good. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. I see what's happening. I'm here for you. God will glorify you. I will support you. And, and I really think Mary having that person, right, her cousin, her relative, point her, point her to the place where this might be okay, helped Mary get to this place of joy and rejoicing. Such that she came to the conclusion that no matter what, because she doesn't know what's going to happen. She thinks Joseph's probably going to outcast her. But no matter what, Mary says her life will glorify God. She doesn't say it'll be perfect. She doesn't say she'll have everything she wanted. She very well might have literally nothing and depend on others and their kindness for the rest of her life. But she says, my life will glorify God. Now, think about that. She's 14. Right? And childhood looked different, but that is a stunning example of how to say, you know, God's dream for humanity, I will make my dream no matter my circumstances, no matter what happens in my life. I will use it to glorify God. Now, as we consider lessons to take from our scripture and our example of Beethoven, the lesson I am not suggesting is that no matter what's going on, you can just pull it together and make the best of a bad situation. Right, make the best of unfortunate circumstances. What I hope we can take from these stories 
is that joy is a choice and a practice. And it very often co-occurs with the heavy and the hard things of our life. And we can seek it and choose it. Not to the detriment of grief or sadness, but together with. They can live together. Right? And that's hard right now. Right? Literally right now. Everywhere you turn, we are being marketed to in subtle and not so subtle ways. Being told that our Christmas... Our lives, our bodies, our families are not quite good enough, but they could be complete for 1999. If consumerism has its way, right, practicing joy could be not giving into that, to resisting those messages. This Christmas, many of us will be experiencing holidays without a loved one, right, with some sort of broken relationship or some sort of loss. And that is immensely hard. And we can hold the joy of the memories we had and the wishes that folks had for us. It's hard to do that in those space. And I, I go back to the Magnificat as an example of how to do that. A few years ago during Advent, um, a few months before I had miscarried, and it, man, let me tell you, when you work in the church and this whole flipping season is about a baby, babies everywhere, pregnancy babies all over the place, it was hard. It was hard. It was a challenging time. And I felt compelled as a faith leader to think through, okay, what does it mean to practice joy? And I remember going to the Magnificat as something that stilled me and helped me consider what justice might be. And I made cookies and I sang songs with my students at Wesley and was able to find spaces of actual joy amidst processing that grief and that pain and that lament. We are currently living through an immense amount of global conflict and wars that are being reported on either fact or fiction at a pace we can't even keep up with let alone hold. It is heart-wrenching. It's destabilizing, considering the loss and the pain and the grief we know is taking place. And here we are, a week away from celebrating the birth of a brown-skinned Palestinian Jew, while raids, bombs, and terror reign in the very place Jesus called his earthly home. That's a lot for us to consider and think about. And I'm not suggesting that we take joy and ignore that reality or that we should disengage entirely from that or any other global conflict. If we can, we should seek ways to provide meaningful support, relief, and advocacy. Seek those out. And our finding and practicing joy does not somehow cause pain in others. It also doesn't take away from anything else folks are experiencing. Our finding joy in trying times is one of the ways the human spirit has found the will to live and to go on. Joy is a gift from God, a fruit of the spirit. It does not neglect those in need, friends. It replenishes our souls for tomorrow to continue advocating for justice, for loving mercy, for walking humbly with God. Joy might be loud, but it is not boastful or arrogant. It's a reclamation of ours and others' agency to say, no matter what the circumstances are, I'm going to rejoice. I will find things to find joy in because God calls us to. 
this third week of Advent, I want you to think about how you can practice joy. Now, you might need to start with what brings you joy. And again, that might be in the passive place, right? So you might have to start with what brings me joy. And then step two would be how do I cultivate that? How do I find spaces for that in this week? How can we claim that life is beautiful and hard just as there are immense hardships? There are spaces in the world worth celebrating, worth rejoicing in. What would a practice of joy look like for you this week? This week, one of the most harried weeks of the year. What would it look like for you to carve out time for joy now, I'm not asking you to add something else to your list. I am asking you to consider joy an essential Christian practice. Right? Because this whole season, we are preparing ourselves for the, for the best news, right? I bring you good news of great... Oh, yeah, there we are. Right? The best news that Jesus was born... A Savior who, among many things, reminded us that, that God wants and wills abundant life for us. Not abundant full of stuff, but abundance of meaning making, of love and joy and kindness and justice and peace. How can you find some time to carve that out, to do the real preparation for the week to come? Let me know how your joy practice goes. I love hearing about what that looks like for folks, what it is that you do. And when we meet again here in this space next week, perhaps our singing of joy to the world will have new meaning for us. Amen. Well, welcome back. Mm-hmm. Here we are. Seems like you were just here. <laughs> it sure does. Advent is flying by. Yeah, it feels it feels weird, and it really shouldn't because technically we have a Lent, a late Lent. That's hard to say. A late Lent. A late Advent. A late Advent. That's what I meant. Thank yeah. you. You know, it really is unfair that the liturgical seasons rhyme. They really should have done a little more with that. Um, yeah, Advent this year started a little bit late um, because it's the four Sundays before Christmas. So when Christmas is on a Monday, that means Christmas Eve is technically Advent 4. And that kind of made it a little trickier. Normally we have another week uh, to, you know, do Advent things, to prepare. But we get what we get, and we don't throw a fit. Hey. We have Advent in the morning, this coming Sunday, and and we get to do Christmas in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Wild. Mm-hmm. Put it all on a day. It'll be great. Great. So, Joyce. Joyce. Yeah, we found out that uh, that's part of your name. Yeah. Joy is built right into you. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know, it's the name I inherited from my dad's side of the family. And I really have thought about it a lot because it has been a big, you know, a big part of my identity. It's been interesting not having it be part of my identity in the same way. Um, but I still think I carry it. And it's one of my, it's one of my tattoos. 
So I get to carry it that way as well, um, the, the family crest. But I've thought a lot about joy and what it looks like and what it means and some of our common misconceptions around it. I've also preached about it here before and I will again uh, because I think we we need to consider and think about how to bring joy into our lives in meaningful ways. Well, let's uh, let's do that. Let's talk about it. Um, so what, you know, our, our base question most weeks, what were you hoping the big takeaway was going to be for folks? Hmm. So uh, I think a two-parter. Um, one, uh, joy. Joy is not surface level, and often we need to claim it in the midst of really hard spaces that folks wouldn't consider joyful. Um, and that joy is a practice. It's not something that just happens to us magically without us, um, you know, wanting it to show up or be there. Those were kind of the two takeaways I had for this week. So talk a little bit about, um, I I get the joy not just happening to us, mm-hmm. although I would not preclude that. It does some, yeah. Come back around, yeah. Uh, but what what are some of the practices that that uh, you think help us to to step into places of joy or to create joy in some way? Yeah. Well, I think um, I kind of mentioned at least at the eleven o'clock for me in a time where I was not feeling particularly joy-filled. Literally reading the Magnificat, that scripture, was helpful for me in being reminded of this much grander picture, which did not make my problem any more small, but it did put it a little bit in perspective for me so I could be open to receiving something new and being reminded that God wills good things for us. So I think part of it, like that was one practice for me. I think another is generally being curious and open. Um, So curiosity, I think, really goes well with joy. So I have found, as I talked about with the Week of Hope, I found joy in a lot of um, poetry, of people just being able to articulate beauty that is not fleeting and it's not you know it's not a conventional societal beauty but just the beauty of life Um, and being willing to be kind of taken by that and the practice would be to be for me reading poetry or listening to music that kind of makes me think and meditate on um, how gorgeous you know life and the world can be I think there are people that um, help me cultivate a sense of joy in conversation with them, I know will will lead to that and will kind of restore me and remind me of the identity of God's created. So that's a practice. Um, we're coming up to the time where I'm going to send out Christmas cards. And like that, I know some people, you know, I some people think Christmas cards are dumb and I get that. That's great. Um, I don't think everyone should do that. But for me, all of thinking of all of these people and like writing their address and thinking about the ways our lives have intersected or connected um, and just the small little thing that I get to put in the mail with pictures of my family and receive one back, like that, those, those bits of connection bring me joy. So those are some of the ways for me in this yeah. time. I was thinking about um, 
in your sermon yesterday, and I, I have the privilege of listening at least twice <laughs> a week to you and, um, and, and picking up some of the, on the nuances and difference between the two services. But one of the things that I, that I thought about yesterday was um, C.S. Lewis, Lewis has a, a book called Surprised by Joy where he's talking about his wife and her who she was in her life on the one hand but also his life after she died mm. and the becoming surprised in both places by joy mm-hmm. um and and that you don't necessarily plan that yeah but but there are ways to make space for that yes and to um to re-enter into the possibility of joy when the time you're in may may seem at all levels to be um, uh, a time of despair, which we kind of typically think about as an opposite sort of yeah. uh, set of emotions and joy. Um, so so that is kind of one dimension I ta- I thought about. So anything like when you when you're in a place that feels like anything but joy. Anything that occurs to you uh, from from the text, uh, particularly the Magnificat, that that strikes you? Yeah. So I, I think a lot of it is Mary's uh, perhaps reclamation. I don't know if "clamation" is a word. <laughs> like I know "claymation" is. <laughs> clamation. I think. I think. I think it's clam juice. Um, yeah. Well. <laughs> I, so I think Mary claiming this identity um, in spite of incredibly um, scary circumstances, I think that bit of it. And then it's also interwoven just with the reminding of God's promises. Um, and I think sometimes we have to remind ourselves when we're not in spaces we can fully believe them or we can't see them in front of us. So I, I think you're right in that maybe instead of practicing joy, it's really more about making space for it uh, to happen or occur, for us to be open to receive it when it is around, um, because it's not something you can will into being necessarily, but you can uh, you can get yourself to a space where you can be like, hey, this is it's possible for me to go there or to follow where joy might be. And I think those identity, being reminded of our identity, particularly in times of despair or crisis, for me is a really grounding experience. Um, and I would, I would imagine for a lot of people, when you feel forsaken, when you feel worthless, when you feel um, like you don't have much to contribute, or, or when you feel like a lot has been taken from you, um, all of that can exist while you can still say, and... I'm a beloved of God, like I'm a beloved child of God. And what does that identity mean? And even if I can't believe that in this moment, if I can articulate it, if I can say it and kind of claim it and try to live into that space, that's, that's where I see the Magnificat tying yeah. in. It's tough because I think what we often do to ourselves is to convince ourselves that I can't have joy in this moment. Mm-hmm. I've lost mm-hmm. my child. I've lost my spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, my home has been bombed out. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the permission to discover a joy in that space 
is often hard to come by because somehow we feel this is not the time. And, and people can get into patterns of convincing themselves that this is not the time, so the time never really comes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm struck by sometimes it's it's the noticing of the reminders because because the kids will discover the joy first. Yep. Um, because they're not, they are, will not let their joy be blocked very long. Yeah. Um, and then we, we tell ourselves, well, that's just kids being kids. Maybe, maybe it is, and maybe it's what Jesus meant, at least in part, by becoming childlike, uh, childlike yeah. that, that it's okay for us to have joy, and we don't have to convince ourselves in any way that it's not. Well, and I think um, I at least tried to lift up some examples of the of the claiming of joy in circumstances that don't feel or seem that way, um, because I you know I when I think about joy, uh, I don't know that I experienced joy without naming or kind of feeling a twinge of of pain or suffering you know or in some way that doesn't take away from the joy it's just it's kind of part and parcel for me. Um, but there's a there's an element of claiming joy that that says I'm gonna be who I'm gonna be I'm gonna be God's created and no matter what someone else does to me I'm gonna I'm gonna be here and I'm gonna sing my song like I'm gonna give an ode to joy regardless of what anyone else um, wants to lay upon me regardless of what other circumstances accidents you know what other mishaps happen I I am going to have agency in claiming. Um, who I am and what I'm going to be about. And I think that's a big part of joy too. It's very uh, uh, liberative, right? That's that's kind of the connection with joy and freedom. Um, in order to experience joy, there is an element of, of being free from uh, whatever would, would try to tamp that down within you. And we're really handed that. In the Magnificat, right? Mm. So we're handed in this in this gospel text, we're handed Mary speaking this bit of um, of really prophetic poetry, very much out of the out of the Hebrew tradition that holds both of those realities, right? These are not these are not two different things. These are both um, elements of what it means to be be alive that we hold gently not as polarities in in opposition to each other but hold gently together and not having to choose the joy over the despair but understanding that that um often if not always it's a package deal yeah yeah i think too at least in terms of um interesting rabbit holes that i chose not to go down (laughs) Um, well, interesting to me. Let me clarify. <laughs> but I, I love, I love this story. Um, I think it is uh, singular. It is unique in ancient um, Near Eastern literature. It, it is, it is just uh, you know, it is incredible um, in that there are you know these women have men that have in somewhat prominent roles like Zachariah is a priest he's you know he's prominent 
um, we didn't read this part, but he can't actually speak right now. He, uh, he cannot talk until his baby is born. <laughs> so an angel visits him <laughs> and, uh, you know, curses him with silence until he can speak his, his kid's name. So we don't hear from him. We don't hear from the, per- the person who should be talking for God, who should be doing the prophetic work. We don't hear from him at all. We hear from his wife who blurts something out. Like that's kind of the language. She loudly proclaims something, Elizabeth. And then Mary, who's this child who is pregnant out of wedlock um, and is really uh, not an outcast, right? Not the person who should be speaking the prophecy of who God is and what God will do. Is like those two women are having this conversation and, and, and talking about what it means to bear God into the world. And it's, it's these two individuals who we have written about in scripture and hold up as our examples, really turning, um, turning everything that the world would have known on its head in this story. You know, certainly not women talking, certainly not these two women, um, but I, I, I don't know. It's just so beautiful and powerful in and of itself. Yeah, and it's the foretelling of the one who will be, who will be born who turns the world upside down Absolutely. and who will not stand by uh, traditions that are no longer um, helpful or just. Um, so, so this turning the tables, as it were, uh, really begins at the, at the earliest stages of pregnancy mm-hmm. and is a conversation between cousins. It's, it's delightful. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it really made me also think about, and I, I touched on this a little bit, but Mary's um, getting out of Dodge, right? Getting out of <laughs> getting out of the city uh, to go visit her cousin. I think it was the Hebrew city of Doge. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, resident uh, Hebrew reader. Um, so I think her, like her ability to practice joy she got into a new location. She got out of the familiar and got someplace new where she could gain a new perspective. We see value in that sometimes. We do things like that. We go on vacations. We visit, that kind of stuff. So she she did that, likely out of fear and trying to figure out what to do next before she started showing in this pregnancy. And then she sees her cousin, um, Elizabeth, her relative, however we want to translate that, who is just so happy and who is so pleased for her and, and gets it immediately, just like gets her. So they have this kind of like, you know, the sisterhood connection that's really beautiful. And I think Elizabeth's loud, overjoyed response um, helped Mary, right? Helped Mary get to the place where she could say, I, whatever, whatever will be, I will glorify the Lord. And it makes me think about those people in our lives we need, um, who are rooting for us, who are, who, you know, who just want the best for us, um, who, are, who celebrate with us, who rejoice with us, who cry with us. And the, making space for joy means being those kind of people for one another and having those kind of people in our lives. Yeah. I think the rabbit hole I would have Oh, what's the, what's the rabbit hole you would have gone down, well, Pastor? <laughs> uh, because I'm, I, I sort of uh, have watched a lot of movies. There mm. was one uh, called Beethoven Lives, Up, Lives Upstairs. Mm. And it tells the story of Beethoven from the vantage point of the kid who's, as, as I remember it, the family owns the house that Beethoven, in which Beethoven is living upstairs. 
um, and uh, and the kid becomes important uh, in terms of cheerleading and mm. and musing Beethoven as his hearing goes right so plays the the kind of the pan character of of, of of bringing joy into this person who's having a hard time holding the joy save for the music and and continues to in the, the kid continues to in, in, invite relationship even as beethoven is trying to push people away yeah mm. uh, a worthwhile film not bad yeah, well, we're giving you a lot of recommendations for Beethoven <laughs> films. <laughs> all the Beethoven, all the time. All the time. Uh, or Pachelbel, depending on how we start off. Yeah, well, the, we're, by, by now, I would have edited that, so now I'll have to edit this, but that's okay. <laughs> or I may just leave it all in, you know. It's all part of the pastor's ridiculousness. Part of the process. We should just call, we should just call the podcast that. Pastor's ridiculousness. Yes. Yeah, it's it's maybe more apt. Truth in advertising. Yeah. Well, I think. Um, huh? I'm not sure. I really have much more. I mean, we're coming into peace next week. Oh, do you do you have more on your notes? Um. Nope. <laughs> I've I've got to watch the YouTube recommendation you had. Sure. Following the ninth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are lots of good YouTube videos of of uh, just, of, of joy. Just generally. <laughs> no, that's not what I was going to say. Ode to joy coming up uh, in variety of places as as pop up orchestras. And, yeah. Uh, and what happens to the expressions of people in places like uh, like old train stations and. Mm malls and there's one of uh, a mall at christmas time where people are just grumpy because because that's what happens when we're shopping at christmas time but they stop and kids in particular are absolutely amazed by this gift of music so you know i will say i um i most commonly encounter uh you know, the, the fourth movement of beethoven's ninth symphony set uh, as a hymn Right, so joyful, joyful, we adore thee. And for this sermon, I listened to it uh, by itself. And like what, I mean, it is, uh, it is, uh, it's powerful. Like it kind of viscerally takes over, uh, at least for me. Like, it, 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 yeah. I don't know, it, it's hard to think of anything else while it's happening because it is just so uh, driven and um, intense. And it, it it's interesting because it doesn't, I don't know if I would have guessed its name would have been Ode to Joy from listening to it, but in terms of the experiences of joy, how they are intense and often mixed with kind of other emotions and, you know, especially considering what he was going through at that time, I get it. So I'd, I'd recommend that too. Listen, just listen to Ode to Joy without, you know, without any of the choral settings um, and think about what it stirs up in you. It's hard to focus on anything else. And I'm someone who always has music happening in my space and in my sphere so I can concentrate on other things. I cannot do that when Ode to Joy is playing. My first exposure 
was um, we had uh, my grandfather's Victrola. Mm-hmm. And we had lots, lots of 78s. And we had a whole set of 78s that together was the London Symphony doing um, doing the ninth. Wow. And, um, and I remember listening to that. And Ode to Joy was this relief. Mm. Because um, the music gets very dark and very heavy. And Ode to Joy is, is this this turning towards something very different at the end. And in, and in among the scratchiness of old 78s and all that, it was clear that yeah. this, this is a, a moment. Uh, yeah, it, do, it shifts direction. And it's kind of, it's like a march towards something else. Yeah. yeah. Aptly named. Um, yeah. And I think a good a good pondering as you as you encounter practicing joy this week, maybe that's one of the ways you could do it by listening to um, Beethoven's fourth and final movement of the ninth. Um, and I want to know what else you do. How how are other ways you practice? What, you, what joy? is your ode to joy? Hmm. All right, Pastor. That's a good question. <laughs> what is an ode? <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! Well, that's our time. Not ode, no. <laughs> Say yes to ode. Uh, clearly, I think we've we've given you all we have. <laughs> so we're gonna figure out what uh what next week will look like because we have a lot of messages in a short amount of time, um, and we're each looking to take a little bit of respite. So we'll figure out something and be back in your ear soon. Because we know you could not go a week without some kind of podcast. Wow. Sure. From pastors. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, we will, I don't know. We'll come up with something. Come up with something. We'll see you when we see you. <laughs>